0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: hello and welcome to the eurocopa podcast i'm your host nipoon chopra thanks for joining us again Tonight, we'll be updating you on the status of the now concluded group stages of Copa America Centenario, as well as discussing the first round of games of the European Championships. In order to discuss these topics, I'm joined by co-hosts and friends, Karthik Krishnaya and Gabe Smith. Thanks for joining me, gentlemen. Let's get into it, guys. Let's talk about group A, uh, the great group that we were, we all have a vested interest in because the U.S. men's national team actually ended up winning this group with six points. Colombia also had 6 and then Costa Rica with 4 and Paraguay with this, the 1 point. So guys, we have to talk about the US men's national team. The last time the three of us were together recording a podcast it was after the US had just lost to Colombia and we were all tearing Jurgen Klinsmann a new one. But now we are at the stage that he's the US has actually won the group uh and Let's talk about those two performances Gabe the first performance actually came uh, against Costa Rica a very good offensive performance for nothing win and it could have been more more than that and as you and I talked about when after the Costa Rica game it was on the back of absolutely no changes made with the starting lineup that lost to Colombia absolutely no changes made with the uh, the, the formations as well. So how mm-hmm. do you contextualize that that performance?
0: Well, you know, I, I think there, there's there's certainly you can focus on um, uh, the way that, that you know, uh, the dynamic that needed to shift, you know, in the player's mentality and attitude going from, um, you know, an opening match to where they knew that their Copa America, um, you know, hopes and, and dreams here and doing anything in this tournament were, we're going to ride then. Uh, on that match. Um, so I, I think that was certainly a, a big case uh, going into the second match then against against Costa Rica. I think, you know, the, the other thing uh, to it, even though, you know, Colombia didn't necessarily play its its best game. We're obviously talking about Colombia, you know, one, one of the better teams uh, here in, in the world, certainly in this tournament. Um, and, and so kind of a, you know, a pedantic display. Then that was put forth uh, against Colombia. Maybe shouldn't have been read in as the the doomsday, you know, type kind of scenarios that I think a lot of uh, soccer pundits everywhere. Us included. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to cast in, in in terms of that performance. So I think it certainly has you had to measure uh, both of those elements going into it. But but overall, I, I think, you know, more than anything, I, I'm just uh, very satisfied then with the, the players resolve and their mentality through it, uh, because there, there certainly was not only just their backs against the wall. Uh, again, from facing elimination, uh, but I, I think just just the perspective and the attitude from American fans there at that point was almost kind of to the to the tipping point, um, and I think that they have have slowly kind of brought back the fans back to the fold, and there's some renewed confidence going into uh, you know a pretty uh, pretty big
1: quarterfinal matchup. Karthik, the what Gabe talks about the resolve really came into play in the in the game against uh, Paraguay because uh, the U.S. Ha- came into the game needing just a point to pretty much uh, guarantee going through. And as it played out, they were a man down uh, and defended with 10 men for about 43 to 44 minutes. And that, in a way, was as impressive as the 4 nothing win. But I know you're going to have a counterpoint, so I'm ready for it.
2: <laughs> well, actually, I don't have a counterpoint. In fact, I think uh, what we saw was a mature tactical decision by Klinsmann to pull Clint Dempsey off a decision I thought was a bad decision after Yedlin's uh, rash challenges in consecutive rash challenges Uh, for those who, who didn't realize this. I think that's the quickest, uh, Back to back, sending off. We're, we're celebrating the hundred years of Copa America. That's the <laughs> that's the quickest uh, consecutive yellows in Copa America history, or at least <laughs> records of, of this sort have been kept. So uh, there was about uh, uh, there was about forty seconds between the two yellow cards, and I think seven seconds of actual play between <laughs> the two yellow cards. Um, so Klinsman is put in this tough position. You're up one nil. You're playing a dangerous Paraguay team. Uh, what he did is he pulled off Clint Dempsey in order to bring Michael Orozco, a defender on. Uh, the thinking was you should pull off Bedoya or pull off Wood or pull off uh, pull off uh, Zardes, one of those three. What, in fact, ended up happening is by pulling off Dempsey, he is maybe one guy who can hold the ball and dribble at people. But you gave yourself the option to play an outlet ball to a, a Bobby Wood, who's a, who's a player who's who's big, not, not necessarily big and strong who I chose the Altidore, but still an outlet ball, a guy who can hold the ball up and is quick enough to where you can play the ball over uh, into space and he can run onto it. Zardis was running the channels very well again in that game. So uh, that's another potential outlet ball. And then Badoya could come back and help with the defensive work in front of Michael Orozco, who is not a natural right back. It ended up being a very, very good tactical move given the circumstance that Klinsman was put in. And uh, I think uh, he gets uh, high marks for that, as Mm -hmm. do the U.S. for seeing out the game. Uh, I know we're going to have to talk about the the, the future for the U.S., uh, the next match. And not having Yedlin, I think, is a a very big deal when we talk about Ecuador. But job well done in the group. Uh, The U.S. uh, certainly – I should say this is the best – I I would take the first 30 minutes of the Costa Rica game out of it. I think Costa Rica were the better team for the first 30 minutes against the U.S. And were unfortunate to find themselves down a goal at that point. This is the best 150 minutes the U.S. has played consecutively in competitive matches under Jurgen Klinsmann, including World Cup qualifiers at home. So, uh, Because you never play two World Cup qualifiers in a row at home, right? So this is the best uh, 150 minutes consecutively of, of competitive play, probably since... Spain, the end of the Egypt game, the uh, the entire game against Spain, that monumental win in 2009 at the Confederations Cup in the first half against Brazil. So this is a pretty high watermark in, in recent U.S. soccer history, seven years.
1: But then, Karthik, I, let me stick with you with this because uh, we've been very critical of, critical of Klinsmann and um, all of us on the podcast in some way or the other. But now we're at the point that if he actually beats Ecuador, which I mean, a lot of – I'd say – U.S. is 60-40 favorites to beat Ecuador. That's what I would say. If he does that, he's actually achieved his goal of reaching the semifinal. So where does Klinsman stand in your eyes right now?
2: We're in the middle of a tournament, so it's tough to assess, but... Uh, this is a major tournament. This is the biggest tournament the U.S. has played in outside of World Cups in its history, <laughs> really, uh, other than the 95 Copa America down in, in, in Uruguay. I'm sorry, the uh, Confederations Cup. Uh, it was great to beat Spain, but it's the Confederations Cup. It's kind of a throwaway tournament. And the Gold Cup, to me, is just uh, uh, if you don't win it, then you've done something wrong. <laughs> and the U.S. hasn't didn't win it, so they did something wrong last year. Uh, this, If you get to the semifinals of this tournament, as badly as it started, I – I think it speaks to Klinsman kind of maturing instead of tinkering. You know, he's a tinkerer, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because he always has to harder than than us. I've, I've talked about this before countless times on this show where he'll tinker, he'll give these formation wrinkles because he wants to show he's smarter than us. And he actually does get tactics, even though everybody uh, uh, has said uh, that Jurgi Jür- Jür- Love did the uh, tactics in Germany and Philipp Lahm said he we c- we couldn't figure it out at Bayern. Uh, we didn't have a coaching staff. We had to figure it out on the pitch. So he's had this reputation. So he's tried to, tried to push back against us by proving he's smarter than we are. This is the first time he's been mature enough to realize, OK, I have... 11 really good, uh, a core 11 that's really good, and then a couple guys off the bench in in Pulisic uh, and Nagby and and Graham that, that that are playing at a very high level that we can incorporate. I don't need to mix and match like he did even in the World Cup. The U.S. had by... By most standards, a successful World Cup, considering mm-hmm. the group they were in. But he kept changing the lineup in the World Cup, right? right. And he started Brad Davis at the, on the left side. You know, one of the slowest uh, left-sided players in MLS. He started against Germany. So think about that. When the U.S. was on four points and was leading the group, um, and had an opportunity to win the group. So uh, he's a tinkerer. This tournament, he's been very mature. He's left well enough alone. I think mm-hmm. um, I was on another show discussing the U.S. Mets national team uh, earlier today, and I said, if you look at our player pool, this is the best our player pool has been since uh, entering the 2006 World Cup. And again, we were entering the 2006 World Cup with an injured, uh, with a rundown, Claudio Reyna, who had had a lot of injury problems the previous year at Manchester City, previous season, and uh, John O'Brien, who was at the end of his career, and he never played uh, another match of competitive soccer after the World Cup. So uh, if you if you could factor in the injuries of those two guys, this is the best team we've had since 2003 or 2004 the very early stages of qualifying for that world cup so he should be doing well Mm -hmm. but he is doing well and um which means we'll have to take a step back after this tournament and assess it but hey you know you're you're judged at the international level you're judged by tournament football and uh you see coaches who come in after great qualifying runs who uh, get the sack after three games uh vert van marwick comes to mind the dutch in, in euro 2012 because things blow up in a tournament the U.S. might have caught lightning in the bottle and caught fire uh, uh which is defies all the form guides for the last two years of how they played in this tournament but it's tournament football and uh he's going to get rewarded for that
0: and now to and, and if I can jump in real quick I, yes. I agree with everything uh that Kartik just said there but that all said I, I do think though that this won't necessarily quell some of the biggest uh anti- um, uh, you know, that population that's out there. Because I, I can just see it already in terms of the, the the narrative is still going to be, well, you know, looking at this, you know, Columbia more kind of lost its first place seating rather than USA winning it. Uh, and, and that, you know, you have then to where looking at, at the, the actual matchups there in terms of the, the biggest team that USA has faced and in, in this tournament being Colombia, uh, lost two zero and that, you know, we'll see what happens here against Ecuador. Uh, but it's, you know, it may not be until then, you know, the semifinals you have in another big South American type opponent. you know, we'll see how they fare with that. So I, I, I like I said, I agree with what Kartik and I think that people need to reassess and, and take, you know, kind of a, a big picture look at that. Uh, but I, I know that just in terms of the way that, this 24/7 kind of sports cycle, and really, you know, taking maybe facts and and elements, then and really kind of converting it into your own narrative there. That this won't do anything to uh, to necessarily silence then his uh, his bit of critics out there.
1: Yeah, I mean that's true, and I think uh, that touches on to something that. I've been thinking a lot about which is uh the reaction, you know, the the immediate reaction of these games and how uh one result here and there basically completely changed the narr- the analysis yeah. after after, after yeah. the the first loss against Colombia Jurgen Klinsmann's job was on fire, on on the line the win uh, the win against Costa Rica kind of quelled that and then the win against Paraguay it, suddenly let me changed me out
2: Yeah, the narrative completely changed. I agree with everything Gabe said, and I'll go a step further. So Neil Gulati, for the first time in – Klinsman's tenure publicly addressed that entering right. the Costa Rica game mm. because the Colombia game had been such a disappointment and said yeah this is a important tournament everything is everything is on the table if we mm-hmm. fail on that I'm paraphrasing but that's basically yeah. what he said um, and since then the, the team two has wins. been playing lights out yeah. <laughs> it's very, very odd or maybe there's a direct correlation I don't know
1: Yeah, basically what you're saying is Sunil Galati is the reason the US men's National yeah. Team is doing well alright I got it, <laughs> I'm send, to send, it. The, send the thank you cards now send, send thank you cards to Sunil Galati uh, gentlemen, before we switch to talking about group B, let me tell you about our sponsor SeatGeek. So the big problem that I always have with these, these, uh, places we buy tickets from is that when I get, go to the checkout line, uh, sorry, the checkout page, there's always a huge fee added on, whether it's like $10 um, fee for Picking your nose or $20 fee for waiting in line on the internet for 30 minutes, whatever it is, they randomly make up a fee and you have to pay that. So there's actually a big difference in the price you're quoted and the price that you actually end up paying with SeatGeek. That's actually not the case with SeatGeek. They every time you actually buy the ticket, that's the, that's the price you'll end up paying and they put all the tickets available on other sites into one place. So you save time and never miss a deal. And you can even set alerts for upcoming events such as as we know, the Copa Centenario or the International Champions Cup, which I know Gabe is going to go watch some Liverpool action uh, in St. Louis. Was it St. Louis, Gabe? Right. Yes, it is. So how can you get these tickets? That's the next question. So what you have to do is, in order to get your $20 rebate on tickets, you download the free seat geek app on your phone. You go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. You enter promo code WSTPOD. And then SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first seat, first ticket purchase. So in order to get your $20 rebate off of your SeatGeek purchase, make sure you follow those steps and download the free SeatGeek app. Enter promo code WSTPOD today. Gentlemen, back to soccer. Group B. How do I start? Peru wins this group. When we were doing previews, uh, we, we knew Haiti would probably be whipping boys a little bit but i think all of well all of us definitely picked peru to finish third in this group they end up winning the group ecuador comes second with five points Uh, haiti finishes with zero and brazil ends up with four points ends up going out and that's where we will start this conversation gabe the big talking point in this entire group is the capitulation of brazil when we did previews we noted some of the problems this team had we noted the lack of strikers we noted that they were missing one of the better defenders in the world. We noted uh, the problems within the team with Dunga in, in some cases. Mm. But then we also noted the likes of Coutinho, Willian, players who on their day can absolutely turn a game. So how did this awful, awful thing happen when we saw some of those flashes in the second game where they won 7-1, I think it was? Yeah, you know,
0: I I think it's 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 interesting when you when you look at this. uh, I I think this kind of shows um, every bit of the the highs and lows that that Brazil's uh, gone through. Um, You know, I think we'll we'll, we'll obviously maybe chat a little bit about in terms of Haiti. Um, You know, that obviously seems like in terms of that score score line now, just, you know, a a, a one off, you know, a blip on the radar um, there. When you when you look at then their their performances, um, you know, against Ecuador and Purdue. Um, I, I think that the, the biggest thing with with Brazil is is that they're they're really uh, with with the inconsistencies, the the change in manager staff. Now it's almost you know happening every two years. Uh, you know they're really lacking an identity. They're really lacking a presence. Um, it, it was interesting into this tournament. You know you you, you could say that there was going to be already a, a tough situation to come out of this. Then uh, doing well with with such a priority and focus. Uh, towards in the Olympics, uh, since that was going to be played in Brazil, um, you know, you, I, I think it's I think it's unfair to say that this was Brazil's B squad uh, per se, but but it certainly was a a, a, a much younger squad, uh, full of some players, then that much of the international community uh, has has never become acquainted with, uh, unless they're following then uh, the the Brazil domestic league, then um, quite routinely. And and you had some opportunities. I think you, you had some players that, that took some of the opportunities there that were given. Uh, Gabriel Barbosa, uh, Gabigol then played well in his appearances there. Uh, maybe not so much then against Peru, but there were certainly moments I think can be built upon. Uh, you know, Phil Coutinho um, had a definitely a, a great game. Uh, there against Haiti uh, overall throughout the course of the tournament. I think he still, you know, was one of Brazil's best players, uh, especially from an attacking sense there. But you, you get back to I think the decision making uh, and the personnel uh, that that Dunga carries out. I mean, it's always been one of the biggest um, I, I think critiques. Then uh, his his player selection, his tactics, and his choices there. I mean, this was something that goes back even as far as as 2010 when he had his first stint. Uh, there with Brazil, um, you know, and looking at the World Cup performance, um, while it wasn't it wasn't necessarily up to the par uh, of obviously Brazil standards, where Brazil had been, it, it was something at least to kind of build upon. But even at that point, you still had some of, uh, of Brazil's there, some of its best players, even players like Pele, uh, they were questioning then his, uh, you know, the players that he brought uh, to that particular tournament, and again the style of the play. So I, I think that's that's always been kind of hanging over. I think it's definitely something to where, you know, looking at the reaction with now Dunga being ousted uh, as manager uh, for for you know a good majority, he was never really the manager that they wanted. Um, again, more of the fans, not necessarily the Brazil than uh, organization the behind the scenes there. Um, so I, I think, you know, coming from this tournament, I think some of the fans are, are going to be looking forward to the future, obviously looking towards the Olympics. But you have to say, one of the biggest disappointments
1: coming from Copa America is obviously the fact that Brazil couldn't even get past uh, the, the group stage there. Right. And Karthik, we know that Dunga has lost his job. And in some ways, he's lost his job to this idea of the of the brazilian team that brazilians have they have this and and the world stage actually all of us have this idea that this brazil team exists that the likes of players like ronaldo and romario uh, and, and zico and and socrates and all those players who we you know those names roll off our tongues uh, rivaldo is the one i forgot so however that that idea of the brazil shirt has weighed heavy on this team, this team that didn't have those players. And Dunga, in some ways, has lost his job because of the expectations of the that Brazil team. So talk to me about the difference in reality of Brazil versus the idea of that Brazil shirt.
2: Well, that Brazil shirt's a very pertinent thing. I, I was uh, in Orlando covering the, the Brazil-Haiti game, the game where Brazil scored seven goals. Last week, uh, Philip Coutinho... Philippe Coutinho had this brilliant game playing kind of in a deep-lying playmaker position and, and running at guys. And Dunga had, had put him there purposely giving it, to give him more space, more time on the ball, uh, more ability to be creative. And a lot of the Haitian supporters and Haitian uh, journalists were, were saying after the game, we're in awe of the shirt because – uh, this is why we played so poorly. We, we, it, they, and, and I've known this for years about the Haitian relationship, the Haitian fan relationship with Brazil. That's, Haiti hasn't qualified for a World Cup since 1974. That's, they typically root for Brazil in international tournaments. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Haiti doesn't always even qualify for Gold Cups, right? They qualify. They're hit or miss. They qualify for one Gold Cup, miss the next one. It, it kind of goes like that. So um, they there there's this awe of the Brazil shirt in Haiti. But South American teams... Ecuador Peru and, and and the teams that Brazil's playing and qualifying right now they're right outside uh, automatic qualification spot they would they would end up in a, in a playoff Uh it, they're not in awe of the Brazil shirt anymore. Brazil's like any other South American country. The level of football and common the ball is so good. The level of tactical coaching from Argentine managers who have spread out across the continent managing. Look look at the, just the impact of Argentine managers. Peru, Argentine manager. Paraguay, uh, he's just resigned, but Argentine manager. Chile, we've talked about the two Argentine managers, Sampoli and uh, Bielson, what they've done. Uh, uh, Jose Peckerman, Colombia, Argentine manager. And they've all figured out how to play brazil and beat brazil every every single one of them so uh it's that shirt doesn't awe anyone anymore it still awes people in brazil they have that level of expectation but it's like uh the 1980s and early 1990s in in uh, baseball in the united states when the new york yankees had fallen off uh the pinstripes of the yankees are similar to the yellow of brazil I think the level of expectation for Brazil is out of whack. They have one great player, right? We have Maybe they have two great players. Uh, one uh, who is Neymar, who skipped this tournament. The other is Thiago Silva, who can't get along with Dunga and has been out of the team now for about two years. You take those two guys out, you, you hear constantly, and we're going to get to the Euros in a few minutes and talk about Portugal drawing Iceland. You hear, well, if you take Cristiano Ronaldo out of Portugal, they have some nice players at big clubs, but they're they're just like any other European side. You take Neymar and Thiago Silva out of Brazil, it's not like it was when those names that rolled off the tongue, uh, the, the Zicos and the Socrates and, and, and the Rivaldos played for Brazil. You take uh, Neymar and and, uh, Thiago Silva out of the team, they're not only like any other South American team, they're arguably inferior to Chile and to Colombia and Ecuador and certainly to Argentina. So uh, I think the level of expectation is out of whack and Brazil has to come to grips with the reality, which is that they are – and this is the case also as the three of us cover European club football – that Brazil uh, – is even losing its aura as a great manufacturer of players in South Mm -hmm. America. I think most clubs in England would prefer to sign Argentine players. They think they're better professionals. They're probably more uh, technical than Brazilian players. We've never been at a stage like we are right now with Brazil.
1: Yeah, good point. And I would argue, just to add on top of that before we move to Group C, is that when I think back to, to the... 2002 World Cup winning side, There were excellent players in that team in the forward positions, uh, but they had a better goalkeeper and they had a better central midfield. I know Fernando mm-hmm. uh, Fernand, uh, Fernandinho has done a somewhat of a good job, but honestly, I can't even think of uh, a player like Kleberson. So Cleberson is a player that three of us know from NASL, who, as Sir Alex put it, and a lot of people in Brazil put it, uh Tim Vickery put it, Basically catapulted them to the to the World Cup, and Chris Hennage always has this saying that I love: that there are either too many uh, piano carriers or too many piano players. And I think Brazil is having the same problem Belgium is that there are too many piano players, <laughs> was, and they I was going to ask if few. you're talking
2: about Belgium or Brazil. I'm yeah, both,
1: They both need a p- a few piano carriers because those are the players that win you these championships. I think. All right, gentlemen. Let's move ahead to Group C. Mexico wins this group. Uh, I think we all knew Mexico would qualify. I thought, I think all of us picked them to qualify, s- uh, second. Venezuela comes second, both of them even on seven points. Uruguay, out of the group, three points. Jamaica, whipping boys in this group. So let's, uh, I'd like to start with Uruguay first, Gabe. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do we start with this Uruguay team? So obviously your beloved Luis Suarez didn't play a minute, uh, because of that hamstring injury he incurred, uh, before the tournament. But what disappointed me was outside of Godin, you can point your finger at multiple players in this team who did not live up to the expectation we had of them, whether that was in defensive positions, whether that was in central midfield with the likes of Arvelo Rios, or in the forward positions, which, of course, we are all thinking of Edison Cavani.
0: Yeah. Yeah it it really was I mean I mean you started off with with Godin I mean him and Jimenez uh, you know I mean talk about in terms of you you have you have a a a center back pairing uh playing for for club and country here um that you know in terms of really should be knowing exactly where each other need to be, positioning there. Um, uh, Now, obviously, in the the grand scheme of things, the defense wasn't necessarily uh, the the biggest issue uh, there, but I was quite taken back by it did not seem like they were on the same page at times. Uh, I I think overall, you know, Uruguay lost this in midfield. Uh, There just didn't seem to be, um, you know, enough presence there in midfield, enough stability, uh, whether it was in terms of being able to to eliminate the counterattack, um, Than that they were facing at times, uh, especially against then Venezuela. Uh, if it wasn't then looking at in terms of being able to connect and 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 be able to hold in the ball and be able to feed then Cavani uh, up top, and and of course then we look at 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 Edison Cavani. Uh, you know that that game then uh, against Venezuela was 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 shocking there towards towards the end, especially um, the the missed chances. Um, that were there. I, I was completely blown away by um, I just did not see Cavani uh, missing some of those opportunities there towards the end. And, and you really didn't have, I think, then that kind of player that was stepping through someone then who was going to be able to take then uh, Suarez's absence. Uh, and, and really make it an opportunity for them to, to step up and, and um, you know, have, have you know, the opportunity for, in the future, um, you know, inserting themselves and, and making it a tougher question than uh, for the manager. And, and I was kind of looking at maybe it might be either a, you know, a, a Gaston Ramirez uh, or an, an Abel Hernandez. Uh, one of those two, even though Hernandez got a goal there, but a very inconsequential game there against Jamaica, obviously as both teams were limited in that third leg uh, or that, I'm sorry, that third match. Uh, I just didn't really see that at, at any point in time, and and uh, you know you have to say that we were talking about in terms of, of uh, Brazil, um, you know, and, and being a big disappointment. Um, I, you know, I, I certainly put Uruguay uh, much higher. I mean, the expectations, mm. you know, historically overall, Brazil, you know, carries you know a bigger stick. Uh, but right now, at the current point, Uruguay right now is 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 leading. Uh, you know, all South American teams then in, in, in World Cup qualifications. Um, and, and they've been able to do that thus far, obviously, with with the whole entire Luis, Luis Suarez then suspension. So this mm-hmm. expectation of Suarez coming back Really lifting the squad, that this could be, you know, a team then uh, to really look out for, uh, you know, leading up to then the World Cup in 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 2018, and and of course now it's completely changed, you know, and, and now the questions become what in the world went wrong, and and I think there's a multitude of factors, and and obviously you're going to have some of the focus too in terms of Suarez and the 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 outburst that took place um, there, uh, you know, in the second leg against Venezuela when uh, when it, it appeared that he wasn't even. told in terms of not being on the list I mean it it became then almost just just a comedy at at that time and so any way you look at it whether it be on the pitch or off the pitch uh Uruguay put put forth quite an embarrassing performance Mm -hmm.
2: this having been all said and I agree with everything Gabe has said I will point out because they're top of the South American qualifying because they're Uruguay and we know they didn't have Luis Suarez fit in this tournament Tabarez is a legend he's a great coach there's no threat. It's only yeah. an issue if you're not doing well in qualifying. People asked about this awkward Copa year. How was it going to how, how are South American countries gonna, gonna, going to going to judge themselves? And and I've, I said prior to the tournament, well, if they're doing really well in World Cup qualifying like Ecuador and Uruguay are, it may not matter that much to them. If they're Brazil or they're one of the countries at the bottom who are struggling, it, it could give them a boost. Well, We saw how Brazil reacted. They're not doing well in qualifying. And so they felt like they needed to to at least contend to win this tournament. I mean, not get knocked out at the group stage. And Dunga lasted uh, about 24 hours after they were eliminated. So it was a big deal for them. For Uruguay, they want to win Copas. They've won more Copas, uh, South American Championships slash Copas than any other nation. But I don't think it's a huge deal, honestly, because yeah. I think they're 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 fine, and they will have Luis Suarez back in qualifying, and he's one of the five best players on the planet. And they don't have uh, a reason for players to be checked out. I mean, Dunga, as I re- re- say again, because he had alienated Thiago Silva, they were always at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. They don't have that many great players, and so they're they they've been playing with a hand behind their back basically for two two years now.
1: Karthik, uh, I want to talk to you about Mexico, but I really quickly want to say something about Venezuela because one of the most common pieces of feedback we got about the, um, when we were doing the dailies was, uh, our, well, you mostly your ability, uh, to place teams in a socio-political context and how much people enjoyed learning about that. So I, one of the teams we didn't really talk about in the background was Venezuela and Uh, The reason I bring this up is just today I was listening to an an NPR uh, podcast uh, with Fresh Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and she interviewed this gentleman who lived in Venezuela, and he was talking about uh, how much poverty there is now and how many uh, many, uh, financial problems Venezuela is having uh, in the sense that a lot of the country is having to ration its electricity. So I was thinking about this because there are these people who – who probably missed some of this game of some of these games but Venezuela has done so well in this group and it it will lift and that's why we love this game. They, it lifts people. And uh, real quick
2: on real yeah. quick on that, Ali Moreno uh, from ESPN, who of course is uh, Venezuelan international, 40 plus caps. He played his entire uh, professional career, club career, in, in Major League Soccer. So American fans know him well. Eleven seasons of professional, all eleven were in the U.S. We're, we're in MLS. Uh, he said that this is uh, incredible because of that. Exactly what you pointed out. I, I, a lot of the uh, the protests against the Maduro government. A lot of the uh, the, the the, the, the suffering all of that is, is is suspended temporarily and uh the country right now is riding the wave mm-hmm. yeah. and it, the wave might 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 end real um uh subside real soon they're going to play argentina, argentina in the next <laughs> round if they held on against mexico they would have gotten a, 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 a weaker opponent but um it's still pretty amazing, and it's uh, something that has uh, the country in a, in a kind of a frenzy for these couple of weeks and yeah. putting aside their trouble. We know football and sport can do this, yeah. and all too often we're going to talk about the problems at the Euros in a little bit. It does the opposite, uh, but this is really a feel-good thing, yeah. and kind of the opposite of what we've seen at the Euros, as I said.
1: Karthika, a country that will be buzzing is Mexico right now. They, yeah, have, right. they have had three very good games uh, and are credit to themselves with their not only their style of football, but the structure they have created in that team. And a lot of the reservations y- you and I had, uh, especially in terms of Marquez's role in that team uh, beyond his leadership, his, his positional role, have been answered at least in these three games. So, what did you three? What did you see through of this Mexico team that uh, has allowed them to win what was a very difficult group?
2: They're tight at the back, and uh, Sorio's team. So. I covered MLS more closely than I do now, actually, when Osorio was managing an MLS. Uh, I, I think, actually, those days I was exclusively covering MLS, no, nothing else. And uh, Osorio was very organized. His teams are very tactically sound at the back, uh, which is why I wondered about, the, what are they going to do? Torado is no longer in the team. Congratulations, guys. Uh, Torado is now a member of yep. the 11 in NASL. Mm-hmm. Uh, com- uh, Torado was a the theme of our preview pods, so right. I'm excited to see him <laughs> in NASL, but he has slid Rafa Marquez into that Torado a role and it's worked. And that's the kind of the linchpin because if you look at even the teams he's managed at the club level, Osorio's got this incredible background. Uh, he, he began as an assistant here in Major League Soccer, went to Manchester City under Kevin Keegan, was an assistant on Keegan's staff for three and a half seasons before returning to Colombia when Keegan stepped down and Stuart Pearce took over, returning to Colombia, managing Millonarios, then coming back to the United States, managing here uh, for two MLS teams, then going to Mexico and managing, then going to Sao Paulo and managing. He's been able to take all that knowledge from managing uh, both in England with Manchester City and And all these teams in the Americas put it together and create a system that is tight and efficient but also has some flair in it. And you see all these different influences on him. And I should point out he's Colombian, um, not Mexican. So it's uh, Colombian with a lot of American in him because he spent a lot of time in the U.S. It's a very – it's a very it's a great pleasure to watch this team the thing i worry about though i hate to bring this up and this again we're going to talk about these these problems the euros later mexican fans are notoriously uh, xenophobic and they've Mm. got a colombian coach with massive american influence a guy who spent a lot more time in the united states than he has in mexico in in his life um and uh actually educating this country speaks fluent english obviously um I, I worry that if they don't win this tournament because they've looked so good at the group stage, they look like the best team in this tournament besides Argentina, that because he's Colombian, you know, the short knives begin to come out. Let's say they start to have a little wobbling in, in qualifying because they've been they've ripped through qualifying which is something mexico never does uh mexico had uh they almost didn't qualify for the for the final round when Sven and erickson was their manager then kind of struggled even after Aguirre came in and then we know last qualifier this they were just very fortunate to qualify um i worry that there's going to be a a, a a turnabout on him as the manager uh, but right now it looks very good and and i i think it's we're look we're headed for an argentina mexico final in all likelihood in this tournament uh maybe the united states has something to say about that, that maybe ecuador has something to say about that right. but i really don't see anyone else those four countries and obviously u.s and, and ecuador play each other in the next round so you're and gonna the winner
1: into, will play argentina almost certainly and the
2: winner will play argentina it's wide open for mexico that's what i was about to say they avoid all three of those other countries i think they're gonna be in the finals uh
1: gabe with group dates it's, it's... It's the only one that fell exactly how we all thought it would. Argentina's won the group pretty much unless something crazy happens... Currently, Chile is beating Panama. Is beating Bolivia? Is it Bolivia or Panama? They're playing, No, Panama. Panama. They're, being Panama oh, 2-1 they're beating now. Panama. They're beating Panama. So, which will mean that they are uh, they go through in second place. So, mm. this group has kind of fallen exactly how we predicted it would. Uh, so, instead of going on about how good Argentina is, we'll save that for when we talk about when we review in the uh, review them in the quarterfinals. Let's talk really about quickly about Chile and then move on to uh, talking about the Euros. So, Gabe, Chile. Uh, some of the same analysis that we had before the tournament started uh, with the likes of Vidal, um, the likes of Sanchez. Those are the players that we focused on, and those are the players that have managed to deliver along with the likes of Vargas.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I would say that at this point in time it hasn't been as impressive a performance uh, by by, by Chile for me. I I think um, certainly in terms of um, you had the, the opening match against Argentina certainly a, a tough opener uh, to begin the tournament um you know having that uh, I, I really don't think that you know and, and obviously that was a you know two- one loss to to Argentina um, I, I didn't think that they really you know went full throttle there uh, against Bolivia um, I, I mean we saw in terms of of Argentina which I, I certainly wouldn't say was ruthless a, a, at all uh, but you, you had then obviously a, a first half that um, they were they were able to impose themselves on it but really wasn't until uh, Messi coming on the second half there in a short short pretty much 30 35 minutes stint uh, where we saw a hat trick um, uh, that you know Argentina then so ended not, up with that it's day at the office for Leo yeah, Messi yeah you know, you know, all, all i need is 30 minutes uh, i can get three <laughs> goals in 30 no no problems thanks <laughs> Uh, you know, I I just didn't really see that, you know, in that same kind of presence. Then uh, obviously, when, when Chile played played Bolivia as well, so I I, like I said, I I haven't haven't been too impressed. I, I do think that in terms of um you know going going into the to the next round, then uh going against Mexico most likely again if if we are seeing then Chile as being the, the second seed in there, uh, I, I do see Mexico getting past that. Uh, could make for at least an an interesting then uh, semifinal matchup between. Uh, than Colombia, so but but overall Chile in terms of it, like I said, just just hasn't hasn't really impressed me as much as as, um, as I thought they would. Uh, although I will say that uh, that based on the performances thus far. Um, I, I think that you know you really have to, to look at the, the squad there. It just didn't really see enough people kind of step up. Uh, I thought Vidal was was great through this tournament. Uh, Vargas has got the two goals then uh, so far against against Panama in, in this match. Uh, Alexis Sanchez um, you know I, I, I think sometimes my, my biggest question mark with him uh, is when he does try to play, almost in that kind of central striker role uh, that just doesn't seem to, to necessarily call out some of his best qualities. And I think this might be something that, that Chile needs to overall kind of think about going into to future tournaments. Uh, but, you know, I say that now and, and
1: probably, you know, Chile's going to end up, uh, you know, running a riot and go away to the final now. So it's just, <laughs> just my luck, I'm sure. Karthik, let's move on to the European Championships. Uh, we have to start with the ugly part of all of this, and that's the fan violence. Um, we know that we're a huge... There was a huge issue during the England Russia game, uh, and is as uh, recently as this afternoon. There was a there was an ugly incident at a at a bar, or it was either a bar or a restaurant. Uh, I saw the video of Russian fans throwing chairs at English and Wel- Welsh fans, and English and Welsh fans uh, yelling back at them, singing in unison, and police having to break everything up. So. Talk to me about this, Karthik. I'm. This is the. This is the ugly part of soccer. This is the part of soccer that we don't want to see. And a lot of us like to pretend, myself included, that we're kind of past this Green Street hooligans type mm. of um, experience in the in the soccer community. So why is this happening right now?
2: Well, I all, I think we all thought we were past it. This is the 1980s again. Mm. This is terrible. This is the worst. And I, and, this is the worst outbreak of violence around a major tournament. I think since, well, actually probably even worse than Euro 88 when England, when England was at the height of hooliganism uh, after Heisel had been banned. Your uh, English clubs have been ban- banned from European competitions. England itself had not been banned. So England fans, uh, Euro 88 were smashing things in, in Germany. And then uh, it didn't help that I, uh, they threw the Republic of Ireland in the first game and, and got beat right at the group stage. Mm-hmm. And that just furthered it. And it, this is um this is horrible and and people are in denial about what's going on we can't be in denial this is terrible it is right now more important than the tournament and the football itself unfortunately it is it is they are not isolated incidents it has gone on for four or five days now mm-hmm. it, it, it it people are now looking at the focal point of what happened in the stadium in marseille and then what happened immediately after steve bauer uh, who uh, is working for ESPN during this tournament. Obviously we're used to him working for NBC during the premier league. He, he's uh, with ESPN during the tournament was in Marseille that night and talked about how scary it was for, even for him as so as a veteran English journalist who had covered uh, some of these outbreaks of hooliganism before, which involved England fans and in, Euro 2000 and in World Cup 98 in the same city in Marseille when uh, England played Tunisia that this was much much worse mm-hmm. and much more serious and much scarier. This had actually kicked off three days earlier and there are a couple factors here. Uh, the Russians, f- first of all, uh, I can't remember if it was on our show or if it was on uh, a Daniel Forestine show, but I do remember when the draw was made in December being concerned about England and Russia being in the same group because there's uh, there there are. Uh, rampant political implications and uh putin as uh the leader of russia likes to uh point at the at the americans and the british as the cause of all his problems and has a large segment of the russian population who who agree with that and and so playing against england is not like playing against france or germany for them or Mm -hmm. romania or slovakia or whoever else it's it's a big deal so that gave the Russians an opportunity to politicize the event, which they clearly did. We have right-wing political leaders who have traveled to France. We have um, uh, thugs that are, uh, according to one or two of my sources, not even really speaking in Russian. These are the same people that were sent into Crimea or the same types of people that were sent into Crimea to cause trouble, cause disorder in Ukrainian cities before the Russians uh, and in Georgian cities before the Russians uh, uh, sent the tanks in or were Russian-backed. Paramilitary went in, so the same sort of troublemakers. They're not football fans, but they've been sent to Marseille. On the other end, you've got uh, kind of a volatile situation in 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 England. The Brexit vote uh, for Britain to leave the EU Mm. is in a is in a few weeks. I think there is a majority of support within England to leave the EU. Now, of course, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland are part of this vote. Scotland, there is. Pretty there's strong opposition to leaving the European Union could trigger another independence referendum for Scotland. We don't need to get into that now. If the UK as a whole uh, votes to leave, uh, there are some right wing political elements and some anti you know kind of euro skepticism, anti Europeanism that's that's growing in the ranks. And I know a lot of England national team supporters are in that kind of mold, and they don't support clubs. They're not um, going to. Um, they're not going to Manchester United or Liverpool games. In fact, the fan base of of, of, of Liverpool in particular, uh, a lot of them don't root for England, right? They, mm. they, they, they root for the Republic of Ireland or just watch international tournaments and, and root for their players. They're rooting for Coutinho. Brazil and rooting for uh, wh- whoever else, you know Adam
1: Bogdan, Arigi. yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah root. well, rooting for Origi and and uh, and and their Belgian players, uh, you know, that 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 sort of thing. So there is a different element of person who supports the England national team than the, the club teams. You, uh, a lot of Americans that are listening to the show uh, think about in the Premier League. Don't don't automatically take it like the U.S., where everybody gets behind the national team and there's a you know we all come together, all MLS and NASL clubs. And, and USL clubs were all US men's national team fans. It's not like that there. There are a lot. There's an element of fans who don't root for clubs or root for non-league clubs uh, or, or League One, League Two clubs that are England fans. And then there are a lot of fans who are in England who um, who support bigger clubs or actually think back to the 1980s and say, I don't want to support England. England is, is there's a hooligan element. So you have these two things put in a mixer. Uh, there. I'm very sympathetic with with England's pleas and and the fact that it seems like the European press and UEFA – And people in Europe like to consistently blame the English for these problems unfairly. That having been said, there are a lot of things that the English supporters brought on themselves. Uh, The segment of English supporters that were fighting, the segment that don't have tickets and showed up in Marseille, the 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 segment that were uh, singing anti IRA songs outside of Irish pubs looking for fights. Mm. They're not blameless in all of this. What happened in the stadium Obviously, the Russian supporters attacked them with apparently the uh, encouragement of the Russian FA and potentially the sports minister in Putin's government. Um, long story short, this is a bad scene. Uh, Russia, I think, should have been tossed out of this tournament. They weren't. I think England should be on a zero tolerance policy. And if there are any problems, they should be taught to- any more problems. They should be tossed out. Uh, I do give Greg Dyke credit for having Roy Hodgson and Wayne Rooney cut a video basically saying if you're ticketless, Don't go if you don't have tickets. Don't come to Lille. And if you do have tickets, behave yourself. Uh, That's a courageous move, but I think England is uh, is under the caution could get thrown out of this tournament. And if they get thrown out of it, they did it to themselves. And it's tough for the players. uh, But this is something that we cannot have in football. In this football was not a global phenomenon like this in uh, the 1980s when we had all of these hooligan problems. And this if is a threat to the sport continuing its march to where it unites people around the world. It, it now it, it will become once again tribal, divide people and turn people off. And uh, I, I, I'll just finish on this. In the 1980s, Snooker was more popular on, on British television than football. Believe it or not, because the hooligan element in in the U, in in England and in Wales and Cardiff, uh, Cardiff City hooligans, but you know so the between England and Wales had turned off so many fans of, uh, so many people to be part of the sport. The comeback came uh, after Football United, the Hillsborough tragedy, which had nothing to do with hooliganism, and I'm glad the court has finally confirmed that. Um, the, the world of football came back together and English football is now this beautiful, lovely thing that the world loves. It's yeah. the world's game. It's played in England and Wales, but it's the world's game. This is a threat to it. So it needs to be stamped out.
1: Yeah. Ronnie O'Sullivan, yeah. who's a, who's a big-time fan of the Eurocopa podcast, will be listening and will be happy to hear that you name-dropped Snooker, which is a first for the Eurocopa <laughs> podcast. Gabe, uh, the thing I want to ask you is really quickly because we got to move on. Yeah, sure. Um, the, there's another facet to this that in Karthik's elegant response, he might not have touched on. And that's the fact that with the way things are in Europe, with the terrorist yes. attacks and things like yep. that, there is a hyper vigilance within the uh, governing bodies and the police as well. So I think for no, I would, I'm not blaming the police, but th- that is another thing that contributed, I think, to some of this fan, fan violences, uh, probably the, um, or maybe exacerbated the problem, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, was the egregious use of tear gas and and, uh, somewhat, a little bit of police brutality even.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we can. I mean, I'm glad you brought it up. I, I think it's, you know, it's it's an interesting, you know, kind of perspective to to come from. I mean, obviously, you you kind of see now uh, almost the, the the militarization of police forces, of city police forces, as um, you know, prepare for circumstances that you only think that military um, would would have to deal with, and and so that's that's not something that's unique then to to France or United States. It, it's you know, it's happening all over the world. Um, getting even beyond that, I, I, I do think that you, you certainly look at to where there's been. Um, you know there's this element of, of kind of you know fanning the flames at, at, at times, but I also you know take a step back and look at it in terms of the way that you were kind of characterizing that question and the way he was answering and addressing is kind of how, how can some of these things come about? I think even even in some element you have to look at too, just where the focus was, right? Going mm-hmm. into this tournament, the biggest concern was of an international, you know, yeah. of a terrorist, in, Islamic
1: terrorism, essentially
0: that, that was that was going to take place, and, and so you have to, you have to think that the, at the foremost uh, at the forefront of every then French officials mindset uh, going in preparations and security uh, protocols in for this tournament was was thinking about that. Um, and and so you have then this focus then uh, completely into then you know how how you're patting down you know how, how, what what kind of uh, items are being let in um, you know how are you able to uh, ensure that even these just big pools of people that are that are standing around in terms of kind of watching parties um, these outside TV areas how can we keep them safe right mm-hmm. but it was it was always towards then that that element of of someone bringing bombs like that it was not then again this kind of of return then of hooliganism, uh, this this idea that you were going to have, uh, you know, Jordan from Brighton and Yuri from Saint Petersburg that we're going to have a, a testosterone test, right? right? You know, right there in the streets, and, and so I, I certainly have quite a bit of of um, sympathy for. Uh, the, the type of, of situations right now that French police and, and other officials have been put in uh, through there. But, you know, we can certainly say that there could be things that could have been handled better. Um, we're obviously seeing now uh, some reactions towards what's taking place. I think that they've done a good job of trying to stamp this out, the the, the kind of threats that have been placed uh, towards then, you know, Russia and, and England. Uh, we've already heard then again in terms of uh, alcohol bans taking place. So they're certain, there's certainly not taking this lightly, and, and I appreciate doing so. But it is, I, I got to say, it's got to be you know quite the difficult task right now uh trying to to quell this kind of of uh, fan violence and, and i shouldn't even use the word fan because they're right uh, kartik's right they're not fans they're not really supporters of these teams uh when you have then such a security concern leading into the tournament uh obviously then with uh, some of the terrorist
1: incidents that have taken place in europe yeah. kartik let's move ahead to actually talking about some football now um some few talking points we're not going to go through the groups per se but teams that we tend to focus on uh england the only game we watched was England Russia game beyond the fan madness uh we saw some of the some some good things on the pitch from England and then some of the old school England uh letting go of leads and <laughs> and capitulating so uh so is this England team of Vart by the way let me add a Vardy less England he Vardy was not played in this game uh is this team in the in the uh, danger of falling into the, the same way as the last I don't know Twenty years of English teams.
2: They're not going to be as bad as the team in the last World Cup, so that's the first thing. Uh, They'll be better than that. Not that that's saying much. England was one of the worst teams in the in the tournament. I I know uh, our colleague uh, Christopher Harris, the gapper, thinks England was the single worst team in the uh, in the 2014 World Cup. I'd say they were the second worst. Honduras, Spain, Spain was okay. uh, Spain, yeah, right. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but of course, you could point to moments that we have with Spain, the the Holland game, where it went went yeah. bad for them. But sure, sure. Um, this game, I felt like uh, I saw what Hodgson was trying. I just don't think the execution from Lalana and from uh, Sterling were good enough. Uh, they were, and and I, I think the other issue with playing Sterling and Lalana is you weren't getting, because of the way they play, you weren't getting the kind of overlapping runs from Danny Rose and from uh, Kyle Walker that you need to really create dangerous chances in the area. Yes, England had a lot of possession, they had a lot of half chances. They were clearly the better side in this game, but they didn't create enough chances, and ultimately they scored on a free kick, uh, create, create enough good chances, I should say. Mm. Uh, I really want to see uh, Daniel Sturridge play on uh, against Wales uh, e- e- from an England perspective. We'll talk about Wales in a couple minutes. I want to see Sturridge in that game. I don't know that Vardy is the answer. I think Sturridge is probably that guy, that X factor. If you put Sturridge in a mixture with Rooney— uh, I, I think some wonderful things will happen, and I and I have to say this because there's so much criticism, unfounded criticism of Wayne Rooney. He's the last holdover from this uh, these England fans, and I once again talk about a lot of the England fans not being club fans, not being fans of, of big clubs, not watching the Premier League week in and week out. We talked about that with the hooliganism. They have chosen certain individuals. Uh, Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, and Wayne Rooney to pick on and to take out all their frustrations on and to say, well, this is why England has failed. Wayne Rooney showed on Saturday that he's still a world-class player, that you can put him anywhere on the pitch, and he will be the single best player on that pitch. You can play him deep as a deep-lying midfielder, and he will pick out a pass. He will control the tempo of a game. England fans that then complain about Rooney, which they continue to do after this game, to me, don't understand the game. And I'm very happy for Wayne Rooney uh, that uh, there are some people who now see his value and realize why Roy Hodgson has has kept him in the squad. You keep reading this stuff all, well, Rooney's been terrible for Manchester United. You have to to play Vardy. You have to play this one who had a good season. That one had a good season. Wayne Rooney is still a cut above uh, every English player. I think uh, there was a big mistake not taking Michael Carrick to this tournament, but you got to drop Rooney into that role then to kind of dictate the tempo and keep the ball moving the way Carrick would. And uh, obviously, I think it's a mistake not to take drink water. Uh, that's a whole nother issue, but I'm very happy for Wayne Rooney, and I think he, this could be his tournament. He could define his legacy. England's not going to win this tournament, but the way he played against Russia, he's going to continue to play at that level, and there was no goal scoring pressure on him like there have been in previous international tournaments, and he he's fit i think this could be a defining moment we'll think about remember that last big international tournament for rooney the euro 2016 when england got to let's say the quarterfinals but he really was one of the best players in the tournament Mm -hmm. i'm hoping we have that conversation so
1: i have to say that uh, since we're short on time i won't elaborate on this too much but i actually disagree with karthik and i'm more in the in the line uh, in line with the people who are critical of wayne rooney uh maybe it's because I'm I'm a self-hating Man United supporter, but I see <laughs> a lot of merit in what the argument has been made. Because when I see Wayne Rooney play, I think he catches the eye as a central midfielder when he plays a 50-yard pass, which, to be honest, he's as good as the best out there when it comes to long-range passing. But what he's not doing well for me is the simpler stuff in central midfield. It's a simpler pass. It's a short pass to the wing. It's a short pass to the forward, trying to link up the play. And those are the things that are very important as a holding midfielder. So to me, <laughs> I don't think... Character. Exactly. I completely agree with you that there. There's no disagreement. I think that was a huge mistake to not bring drink water and Carrick. But I think given the personnel they have right now... uh I have I still think Wayne Rooney's a terrific player. i st- just think if England are to be taken seriously, they cannot expect a player to turn into a central mil- midfielder overnight uh the way Louis van Hall did because you can't one day decide that he's a number nine and then two weeks later because you have another number nine in Martial and Rashford decide, oh big deal. Wayne Rooney will play central midfield. Football is more complicated than that, and I don't think a player of even Wayne Rooney's ability, arguably the best English player since Gascoigne, or maybe Bobby Charlton, uh, is able to make that switch that quickly at the world stage. Okay, moving a- a- away from England, Gabe, Spain. Uh, mm-hmm. Problem with Spain, we talked about in the previews, you no know Diego Costa, goal scoring yeah. is a problem. Uh, but then when you have Andres Iniesta, and then uh, basically, you have Andres likes of Andres and Niestan, all those brilliant midfielders. You essentially end up getting a goal from Gerard Piquet. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we're not still sold on Spain. Some of those issues are yeah. still there, but a heartening win for uh, what has been a very informed Spanish team.
0: Yeah, I think you know, you, you, uh, you look at Spain and, and you still think back, uh, to the dominance, you know, that they had. Um uh, and 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 you still want to believe that that team is still in there uh, at some point and uh, you know th- there's obviously elements of it I think inES is obviously a big big piece of this right now uh, and kind of holding holding the fort together for for Spain uh, but uh, the dynamic though is it, it just really isn't there as, as much anymore I think uh, you, know, you look at a, a player like Cesc Fabregas who. You know, at, at times seemed to be you know out out of position. Just didn't mm-hmm. really seem to go with yeah. the flow. All that said, th- then he you know makes then a you know a saving clearance there uh, that that obviously then you know keeps paying three points. Um, you know you see then a, a defense uh, that in terms of individual names is is brilliant. But you know sometimes there's been question marks in terms of uh, PK and Ramos. You know with that that chemistry in terms of building that. Um, but I, I think that the, the, the elephant in the room is, is certainly then their number nine position. Uh, yeah. it, you know, it's been something that they've been weak in, uh, obviously during, during you know they were playing a false nine uh, at that point. They were able to get kind of past that that weakness, play around it. Uh, now it just kind of seems to be a bit more glaring. I, I, I like, and, and all it said, I, I like Morata. I think he's a he's a he's a great player. Didn't have maybe necessarily the best of years with Juventus, um, it, just in terms of coming off the bench quite a bit. Uh, you know, wasn't wasn't a guaranteed start every time, and, and I just don't think that he's a player right now going into this tournament. Um, you know, when Strikers won the most key elements to a striker is that confidence. I just don't think he's, he's got that right now at this point in time uh, to, to really take Spain over the edge. So I, I think the, you know, the question marks are still there. And, and then you, you throw in then the De Gea saga, you know, kind of going into this tournament. All oh, right. you yeah, um, didn't even talk about that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a bit surprised that, that honestly Spain didn't, you know, maybe, maybe lose this one against Czech Republic in, in that initial match, just with all those kind of factors uh, going oh, on there. So
2: were it, you guys, were you guys surprised De Gea started? Because I was after all of that. Uh,
1: I, I, I was a little bit with the, with the lead up, uh, but Nipun, I definitely want to hear yeah your your thoughts. Yeah, so my so thoughts on back. that are that De Gea has shown that he is able to compartmentalize off field stuff, and the perfect example was during the Real Madrid saga. He uh, except for when he was dropped by Van Hall, which was Van Hall being stupid as opposed to De Gea. Even before that, he didn't show any signs of dissent didn't show any signs of dropping form and uh has was able to show that he ha- is able to separate what's going on so I think that's why he started and I think there's a strong there's a um so first of all I should say as I tweeted that it, it's okay for us to say we'll wait until with the facts come out before mm-hmm. we pass judgment on the hair sure so yeah. I think there's a st- Having said that, there's a firm belief in the Spain camp and the Hayes camp that he will be found innocent. So I think that's why the uh, Spanish team stood by him. Uh, and, 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 I think that's why he started. Um, so yeah, that was a good point, Gabe. I, I actually didn't even think about that, but that was a huge talking point before the game kicked off. Gabe, no. uh, sorry, Karthik, uh, let's talk about the Republic of Ireland game against Sweden. Uh, not in sp- specifically about the game, I guess, but, uh, you and I talked about the fact that both of us felt uh, Republic of Ireland would finish above Sweden in this group, which is the group of death. Um, and this game, I was impressed by how well Republic of Ireland played. I thought Robbie Brady was terrific. I thought they did yeah. good in defense. Uh, and had it not been for a brilliant, another brilliant Ibra moment, this game could have honestly finished two or three nothing for real, uh, for Republic of Ireland, I thought.
2: Yeah, they didn't take the chances in the first half. I think Robbie Brady, in the first round of uh, games, you could argue, had the second best performance by any Premier League player. The best, of course, being Dimitri Payet, who was off, you know, might be the best player of this tournament so far Um, for the host nation, of course, for France. I thought Brady was fantastic. Uh, Roberto Martinez tipped it at halftime uh, on our broadcast here in the United States. The former Everton manager, who I criticized a lot as a manager.
1: No, no, com- no. He's I've, one of the best commentators I not, out there. No, and he I've, nailed
2: it again. I've never heard he you nailed- criticize
1: Roberto, uh, Roberto Martinez. Roberto <laughs>
2: Martinez nailed it again. He's, he's, he's been right about everything that he's talked about during this tournament. He said, you know, I think Ireland need to get Wes Houlihan more touches. Yeah, And I'm thinking, oh, okay, that's just a, a basic piece of analysis. Three minutes later, Houlihan, first touch. Brilliant goal. <laughs> First touch of the second half. So Martinez nailed that, but Houlihan was good. Uh, i I felt like uh, the one guy I was disappointed with was Shane long you you know what how quick he is, what a counterattacking mm-hmm. threat yeah. he is and how slow that back line of Sweden is. Uh, the, Martin O'Neill was trying to get him in different positions uh, to to to, uh, to run onto balls, lob balls in his direction and he was uh, he was very fragile. I wonder if uh, if Robbie Keane... Is fully fit if you go with Robbie Keane in the game against uh, in the game against uh, Belgium. Mm-hmm. That that's uh, a consideration. So, but uh, yeah, very good performance from the Republic. They also of Ireland. have
1: Jonathan Walters, who who played fairly well, well in, this excellent,
2: excellent yeah. in this game. Was excellent, excellent in this game. Yeah, I, I mean, I could go through the whole Ireland squad. We both could, and we pick out everybody who was yeah. good. Uh, there's a lot of criticism of Kieran Clark because of the own goal and why is he playing when he didn't play much at Villa this year? But um, I thought he had a good game until that too, moment. Yeah.
1: Same with Seamus Coleman, who was kind of guilty for uh, the Ibra run, but had a good game otherwise.
2: Yeah, and and Darren Randolph was very good in goal. That was a bit of a controversial decision. Martin O'Neill had made that decision a while ago to switch to Randolph, but Randolph doesn't play regularly for Mm -hmm. West Ham, right? He plays in cup games, but I thought he was very good. He had a very, very good game. So... um, I, I, there's not much to complain about other than the result. Unfortunately, the result puts Ireland in a position yeah. where it might not get out of this group, and, and I was thinking there was a very good chance of being one of the best third-place
1: teams coming in. Yeah, Gabe, I'm glad we have you for this. Let's talk about your beloved Belgium. <laughs> we didn't get to have you know what's going. Yeah, We oh. didn't get to have you on when we previewed uh, Belgium's groups as the rotation turned out, but uh, I mean, this was a a good game to watch, first of all, but a poor mm. performance from Belgium. A poor performance from the forwards. A poor performance from the midfield. Uh, I thought in in general, Belgium is okay. So the Belgium team are the Red Devils, much like Man United. And every time I watch Belgium play, if Fellaini not putting away goals, no one's putting away goals. So tell me how you how you rate this your your beloved Belgium side right now.
0: Well, so I think I think that there is—I mean, there's there's definitely enough talent in this team to to where you know I I put them essentially in that you know in that that kind of uh, you know threshold uh you know right below the the, the Germany and the France. I mean, it, there's again on paper there's enough. Talented players in the squad. There's enough to, to tinker with mm-hmm. uh, here. Uh, I think the, the problem is is uh, the person doing the tinkering. Um, you know, <laughs> I've I've never never been a big fan of Vilmots. Uh, I think that what we saw uh, in that match then kind of highlights some of my my personal issues with him. Uh, I think uh, you know Conte masterclass effort there uh, in in terms of what what he was able to do then uh, against Vilmots, and you didn't really see much much flexibility there at all uh, going in from. From halftime in the second half, uh, I was kind of expecting some changes. Um, you, you you brought up then the, the Fellaini point. I think that the the problem is it's it not necessarily a service to Fellaini, who who did overall pretty well because it it almost seems to where when he's in the match, especially playing a number ten position. Um, that, that the entire style of play completely alters, right? Mm-hmm. He becomes a focal yeah, point. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you start then having it to where he's going to knock down balls. You're, you're going to have then overlapping runs from midfielders. Uh, not necessarily, though, the best tactic when Italy uh, is congesting the entire center of the pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, like I said, masterclass effort there. Uh, you saw it to where Belgium... Routinely was either having to completely backtrack, uh, pass it backwards, reset, or moving it around from side to side there, uh, trying to find some kind of inlet in the middle, uh, and the entire midfield there was was completely congested uh, by by Italian players. Uh, it, it was, uh, it, like I said, it was, it was a great effort there. I, I think that overall, when you look at it, uh, Belgium, in, in terms of it, um, again, that, that dynamic that they had there was wrong. Uh, I would have liked to either have seen you know, Hazard or uh, De Bruyne then play in the middle, uh, get then a more natural winger, uh, and Mertens uh, then out on the wings. Uh, you, had, you had some width. You, you had opportunities to play there. I think the, the, the dynamic going against then um, a three-center-back system in Italy is you want to try to draw one of those then outside center-backs out, right? And, and the yeah. width was there. Bring something back in. Uh, but there, there was really no attempts there. And, and again, once Belgium started making any kind of inroads there, uh, lose possession, Italy going uh, on, the, on the counter there. Or if you did have Belgium then that was playing you know, deep back, uh, especially in the second half there at times, trying trying to get something, anything, and, and play a counterattack of their own, you had some very, very, very smart Uh, Fouls there from Italy uh, that broke up any kind of counterattack that was possible. Uh, They just literally frustrated Belgium uh, throughout the entire match. You could see it on the faces there. You could even get at some of the reactions. Courtois was one that kind of seemed like it was we weren't sure if he was taking a shot at Wilmots or if he was congratulating his soon to be manager. There and in, in, in Conte, but mm-hmm. but you could you could tell the frustration. I even saw some Vincent Company quotes. Um, you know, this is this is a Belgian team that you know they're not used to having such high expectations going into a tournament, uh, and, and so this was really kind of the first opportunity to see how they were going to be able to to handle those expectations. And and thus far, we, we've gotten certainly a, a pretty inica- good indication that they have a, a lot to improve on.
2: Yeah. Just a couple of real quick points on this. I, mm-hmm. I think, one, even though he didn't play much for Spurs towards the end of the season, Nasser Chadli, big miss. It's a guy that you could have brought in in this game, along with Dr- Trace Mertens, who, I, of course, I said in our preview pod, I thought would be a key player for Belgium, and I was stunned when he didn't start. Um, and you saw the impact he made when he came off the bench, so I think I would have brought Shadley. I also think uh, you're going to have to get uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, some sort of solution to the Hazard uh, d- trying to take on five guys and pinching inside, right. and De Bruyne pinching inside, because you've got no width, you're just playing nope. into, into the middle, and it's going to be very easily look uh martin o'neill we've watched him for years in the premier league at leicester and aston villa the way he sets up his teams which is to which is to defend uh well and with shane long as your is your counter-attacking threat right uh he, he now has it at the republic of ireland belgium could be walking into the same sort of uh uh coal mine uh, sort of spare you know uh same, same sort of uh trap in in uh in this game, if they don't figure out, they don't get some width, uh, Charlie not being on the team hurts. I also think that maybe uh, you want to find a role for Musa Dembele in this match. Uh, All the width in this game were coming from Simone, uh, who, of course, plays in Major League Soccer, at right back, and then uh, uh, Vertonghen uh, playing left back in a position he was not comfortable with. And he's another player that showed a lot of frustration toward the end of that match with his teammates. So uh, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping it just doesn't blow up because a lot of us want to see Bell Belgium potentially win this tournament, an outsider country win it, but uh, early returns are not good.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, from my perspective, I can't help but feel that uh, as the manager, Wilmotz really has to uh, somehow convince his players that positions actually matter. Because his players are running around in, in, in free roles that, that they should yeah. have no business taking up. And, you know, the, the counterpoint to that is when you have such great attacking players, you'll let them do whatever they want. But that's just not the case, especially in a national tournament. You look at Argentina, the, the reason they've had that success is because there's one player who's, who's given free role. That's messy because he's like one of the, two best players in the world. Angel Di Maria, even even Angel Di Maria, who I think is one of the five best players in the world, does not have a free role. And that's what you need to do as a manager is tell them, hey, it's okay if one of you has a free role, say Eden Hazard does, but De Bruyne, you can't go wherever the hell you want either. Lukaku, you can't go to the left side when I want you to play centrally. Fellaini, you can't be in central midfield when I want you just behind the striker. So there has to be some reigning in of that team and there is none right now. Gentlemen, last thing we'll talk about is... Oh, by the way, we'll skip Italy because I think Gabe said what we needed to, which is that Conte essentially destroyed <laughs> Belgium by
2: What really just ironic yeah. point about Italy, uh, Giaccarini is a Sunderland cast-off. He's on loan, right? He was loaned mm-hmm. to Bologna this year. Uh, Graziano Pella plays for Southampton, never fancied by any of the bigger Premier League squads. Mm-hmm. These are the two guys who scored goals yeah. uh, against uh, a team full of uh, Premier League stars. I mean, you name it like a Premier League a ideal point. best yeah. 11, half of them are Belgian. Yeah. So it's just uh, half or more. I mean, you could put together like an all-star team yeah. of just Belgian players in the Premier League. I mean, to me, that's very... I Ironic, and that speaks again: Vilmaux versus Conte, uh, Belgium's mentality versus Italy's mentality.
1: Yeah. And you can't give enough credit to Chiellini, who was there every time Fellaini went in for a header. So massive yeah. credit to that defense. Uh, Gabe, let's talk about the game here. With uh, last thing we'll talk about is the amazing win. Uh, sorry, the amazing result for Iceland against Portugal. Iceland, uh, <laughs> I can This is the best statistic I think of the tournament: three hundred thousand people population a tenth of them are yeah in France right yeah. now for the euros amazing amazing statistic a tenth of the population is there and someone actually uh i forgot the stat but uh pulled up a stat of how much of the population is actually in the playing 11. It's like 1-1, one, one, uh, <laughs> 10,000 or something hilarious. Or
2: Cristiano Ronaldo has like 500,000 more or 500 times as many Twitter followers
1: in <laughs> the population of Iceland. <laughs>
2: the population. Yeah. That was the best football.
1: What I want to say, uh, everyone, including Cristiano, is talking about the failings of Portugal, but we need to give some credit to this Iceland team, a team that uh, comprises mostly of players who are playing in, in uh, Sweden, and Norway, uh, and of, of course, some players that we know in the Premier League, like Sigurdsson, and someone like um, uh, of that ilk. So, but in general, talk to me about this Iceland team. I can't say enough about what an amazing result this one-one draw is.
0: Yeah, no, I mean it's, it's it's quite impressive. I think you know, honestly, you know, going into this tournament, uh, I, I was a bit you know worried about. The the, the the saturation of the group stages there with the the increase you know from sixteen to twenty four teams uh, you know what was that going to put in terms of the dynamic there uh, of those group stage games what what were we going to see then from a, you know a, a team like Iceland or or uh, a, a team like Hungary and and what we've seen is is actually been uh, been quite impressive in the sense of you know the they, they aren't what we were talking about earlier about, you know, Haiti kind of getting intimidated by by the Brazilian shirts, right? Uh, these nations right now not necessarily getting intimidated by the moment. Um, and, and so I've been quite pleased to see that. I mean, we haven't really seen uh, in terms of, you know, any of the games or the goal differential. Uh, biggest has been been two goals. Uh, it, it's It's been great from that perspective. I, I think that, you know, Iceland certainly obviously came into this match with a game plan. Um Going to be playing, you know, free-flowing attacking football. Uh, They knew they knew they were going to have to pick their their chances. I think they might have had just uh, like two created chances out through the entire match there. Uh, But that's all they needed, right, in Mm -hmm. terms of getting that goal. Now, now that being said, has been has been quite interesting, obviously, to hear them Ronaldo's uh, viewpoints from that as as he was so stupid. Quite quite critical then of that, and saying parking the bus, you know, in the net itself, not even going out to play. Uh, but but again, I mean, in terms of the resources, the lack of resources there for Iceland, I, I'm not sure what he was. Technically expecting going this, and if anything, obviously it's it's just a greater show in terms of what Portugal should have known coming into this match and in in how the setup was going to be and, and how they needed to play. So yeah. uh, I, I'm not sure why they're so shocked uh, in, in that regard, or maybe it's just Ronaldo being Ronaldo, um, you know, to a certain point. But yeah, you you have to you have to you have to love these kind of moments. It's some some of those things to where you get that kind of underdog type performance, uh, even with it being a draw at this point. Uh, you know, it's so something gratifying. that a lot of these players are going to be able to remember. Yeah. Um. You know, the day that they played Portugal and do a draw, or, or again, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know, playing against, uh, you know, a,
1: a caliber of player like Ronaldo. So, yeah. uh, just, just a, just a great feel-good story for sure. Yeah, I think Cristiano, you know, just forgets the uh, the first season against Mourinho, the way they played against yeah. Barcelona. He forgets a couple of games under, uh, even Sir Alex in that 2008 season, the Champions League winning season where, uh, United went you know, won that championship based on defense as opposed to anything he was doing because he was crap for half of that season. So, uh, Karth- Karthik, let's talk about Portugal real quick. Obviously, we talked about Cristiano, but I've mentioned that I-, I personally think that defense has some problems in it and for the goal in particular and also a couple of other chances that ended up being fouls, Uh Portugal's defense looked kind of shaky to me.
2: Yeah, they did. Although I have to say... uh if you take prior to the goal Portugal looked like one of the better teams in the tournament prior to Iceland's goals uh, goal the first 50 55 minutes of the uh, of the game I think Portugal you would put up there with Italy uh, Germany maybe Spain is really kind of the teams that had stood out uh, from from the early uh, from the first set of games in the group stage and then you know, you, there's this old adage, right? A goal can change a game. I, it's, uh, another little bit of analysis. I'm starting from stealing from the former Everton manager Roberto Martinez. <laughs> he said he's seen very few games where a game, a goal has completely changed a game like this. Because Iceland looked like they were they were tired, they were on the back foot. It seemed like Portugal was going to get the three or four in the second half, and then this goal happened, and then we saw. Kind of the cheek shakiness of that Portugal background line, uh, the chippiness of players like like Pepe. And uh, uh, quite frankly, the kind of uh, uh, sloping shoulders and uh, body language and, and, and Cristiano feeling like he had to do more uh, than, than and, and take things on. First half, he's drawing defenders away from uh, other attacking players like Ada and, and uh, Nani, who are then getting opportunities to score goals, opportunities to, 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 to dictate uh, play themselves. Second half, he's then back in that mode. I have to do it myself. I've got to win this game game and um that was what really stood out for me not that and it's great that Iceland got the point and I'm, I think we're all happy for Iceland tonight the thing that stood out to me was Portugal played very well for 55 minutes you wonder how they're going to respond to adversity because Portugal is a country like uh, like England although they've been better than England but you know a country like that that has has not been winning tournaments but People feel like they should be. So I thought, okay, this, this bit of adversity, how are they going to bounce back to from this? How are they going to react? I want to see what happens now that Iceland got this improbable goal completely against the run of play. And, uh, it was, it was bad. It was the yeah. old Portugal and uh, the same Portugal we saw when things began to go wrong in the final in, uh, in, in, in this tournament the last, uh, last time and, and they lost on penalty kicks to Spain, the same Portugal we saw frustrated against the Czech Republic uh, in that same tournament, the same Portugal we saw uh, in, in, in the uh, game against the United States where right. they got the late goal, but they let the U S basically uh, take it to them in the second half. So, I'm concerned uh, about them and and you make a good point about their back line. That having been said, just don't forget the first 55 minutes. They looked really good. They looked like they could win this tournament in that first 55 minutes.
1: That's good. That's why we consider you to be the one with the balanced analysis while gabe and i just <laughs> ramble stuff off so and, uh, and throw each other throw, throw stuff at each other for sure exactly and throws uh, chairs at <laughs> each other so uh gentlemen we'll be back um later this week to talk more uh footy with each other and we'll probably come back after a couple of the um definitely after u.s men's national team game uh the quarterfinal against ecuador which i hope The U.S. will win. And then we'll come back on the weekend as well and then get back to at least a weekly podcast format. Uh, Until we do that, on behalf of everyone at World Soccer Talk and Eurocopa Podcast, uh, I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of Gabe Smith, Karthik Unless
2: you're Dunga, you're enjoying your football tonight.